This is Roots and Stems, an indigenous language podcast brought to you by Sea Alaska Heritage. Roots and Stems is where we dig in and explore ways to support and join language revitalization efforts. Lindsay Penudi Kya'ang. My name is Lindsay, and I will be hosting this episode of Roots and Stems. In this episode, I interview Gokishkit Marianne Ignace, who has done work with the Haida language Hadkil, the Sequetmuk language Sequetmukchin, and the Simshian language Simalgia. I apologize if any of my pronunciations are not correct. I'm still trying to learn how to say some of those trickier letters there. Simon Fraser University so I was just saying hello, good people. My Haida name is Kulkrisgat. I'm from the Yakulanas clan, but that I was adopted into many, many years ago. And uh, I teach and work at Simon Fraser University, uh, but I live in a place that's quite far away from there. Um, the uh, community Skichisten in the uh, Sohwapmoh Nation, where I also work on language revitalization and uh, where my husband is from and my family also lives there. In 2017, uh, through Simon Fraser University, we uh, created a new graduate certificate and master's program in the linguistics of a First Nations language. And I was honored that uh, among the students from six or seven different language groups who applied, one was Susie Edwardson, one of your own, and uh, of course also uh, Koyang Ben Yang, who uh, finished his project last year uh, with a, an amazing um, master's project on Hansinai, the uh, uh, preschool immersion language nest that he uh, got off the ground and is still teaching and working in together with a few of his colleagues. So that's taken me to Heidelberg uh, uh, to support Ben in his research uh, and to uh, help with assessing the students and doing some language planning in the community. Since Mary Ann mentioned Susie Edwardson as one of her students in the Linguistics in a First Nations Language Master's Program, I thought it would be perfect to have Susie join our podcast. My name is Susie Edwardson. I work at Sea Alaska Heritage Institute and I am in the master's program that um, Marianne talked about. Marianne describes her background in language revitalization of the Haida, Sequitmuk, and Simshan languages. And I have worked. Uh for, I guess, going on 40 years, that's a long time, uh, with and in indigenous communities throughout Northwestern North America on language revitalization. Uh, that has included, since I was just a very young kid, 
in the late 1970s, early 80s, uh, working in the Haida community of Old Masset, uh, where the late Sundlene Emma Matthews and Lana Stung, Adam Bell, adopted me into the Yehkulana's clan uh, on the Raven side. And uh, that's where I was doing at the time my research that, uh, uh, towards my uh, PhD dissertation on Haida social organization, symbolism, stories, and uh, traditional oratory. Um, and uh, <clears throat> in uh, the mid-1980s, uh, what I thought was just going to be a very short detour, but has lasted ever since I uh, moved to the interior of British Columbia, uh, initially to do postdoctoral research uh, with uh, elders in several of the communities in the Sukhwapmuk Nation. Um, and uh, that led to more research and more work with elders, eventually meeting my husband, who is Sukhwapmuk, and uh, then living in uh, the community we still live in, Skichistan, which is one of our uh, 17 indigenous communities in the Sukhwamuk Nation and raising a family there. And then as a mother also experiencing the challenges and uh, results of raising our children uh, in an indigenous language that only has a very few speakers. I was interested in learning more about how Marianne implemented her husband's indigenous language into the home and raised their children speaking so I asked about her success in integrating that language into their home. Uh, when I uh, moved uh, initially as a researcher into the Sukhwapmuk Nation, uh, doing ethnographic linguistic work with elders, um, there were still, you know, between the 17 communities, there were probably a few hundred speakers left. This was in the mid-1980s. And uh, my husband, who went to uh, Indian residential school, what you call boarding schools here, um, is was a fluent speaker, uh, one of the younger ones uh, at the time. And uh, so in those days, when I could still go into the home of one of the elders that I lived and worked amongst, and you could have a conversation entirely in Sukhwapmukchin. You know, they. In fact, I was really, really fortunate to work with the last monolingual speaker and experience her, uh, the late Selena Jules, that we had in our. Actually, she was the last monolingual speaker we had in all of our southern communities. And uh, you could be at public functions and people, as long as it took, spoke the language. And I consider myself really, really fortunate to have experienced that because you turn the clock 30-some uh, years later, and uh, I think we're down to about 50 speakers between all of our communities, maybe 75, depending to you know, what makes a fluent speaker and whether that person actually comes out and uses the language. And uh, so it's, it's, it's definitely shifted during that time. 
But uh, when uh, my husband, uh, Ron, and I set out to have kids, um, we decided that it was the right thing to do uh, for them to um, learn Sukhwatmukchin, our language. And uh, my own uh, first language, actually, is is not any indigenous language from North America. I was born and raised in uh, northwestern Germany uh, with uh, Frisian Plattdeutsch as kind of the language that my grandparents, my parents spoke, which uh, went through like an attrition and political castigation for all those very similar reasons that we've experienced here. And uh, so then, you know, and I have training in linguistics uh, which definitely helps with the task of language learning. And uh, I was raised multilingual, that also helps. Um, and so my husband said, oh, you do it, you're the linguist. I said, no, you do it, you're the fluent speaker <laughs> in terms of raising our kids. Uh, so in the end, we decided we were just going to have to both do it. And uh, so at that time, we still had some elderly speakers in the community. In fact, uh, uh, Nellie Taylor, the lady who became our daughter's, our older daughter's uh, godmother, she spoke the language fluently. And so we kind of set off on this path of using it in the home with our kids. Um, we weren't in a bubble that some parents are able to create. Uh, you know, they focus on the children as they raise them one by one, uh, like uh, Pila Wilson and his wife were able to do, right? Uh, we're a large blended family. We had a couple of older kids that had already been raised English and a couple of others, uh, like both my husband and I already had a couple children. So it was a little bit more challenging to then switch to speaking the language. Uh, I remember one time I sort of tried to go to cold turkey with all the kids and uh, and the older ones were sort of like eight, ten years old then, so that didn't work too well. But we definitely made a real effort in the home to consistently use the the Shushwab language with them. And uh, I think uh, it paid off. They all learned to pronounce it really well. They all are fairly fluent understanders. As is predictable, their production uh, is lags behind speaking. Um, each of them, by the time they were about two and a half, figured out that we spoke English. <laughs> and so then it becomes a challenge. We didn't at the time, and I, I regret to say really kind of to this day in our community have a good foundational uh, language program, let alone an immersion program in our community. Um, it didn't pan out at the time to like create a language nest um, for various reasons, even though we kind of tried. So we really just had to do it ourselves. And so what I'm proud of is the kids got really good kind of foundational skills in the language. The, Oldest one of the four, our daughter Sulien, who's now in her late 20s, uh, she actually then went to 
university and studied some linguistics. She did a couple of years of mentor apprentice learning with two of our elders in our community and she's now in kind of an advanced program. So she's, even though she stepped out of it for a few years, she took it on and uh, the other three to varying degrees uh, have uh, continued their path to language learning. Uh, we went through an, a, a really hard time when, when our youngest one was three and a half, four, we'd lost uh, their brother, um, uh, he was killed. And it really taught me as a human being and taught our family also how this sort of task of being a practitioner in language revitalization with uh, uh, teaching, instilling it in your own kids. It, it, it sometimes hangs by a thread if you go through really big trauma in the family, in the community, and um, English surfaces a lot more because it always takes that extra effort, uh, hopefully when there's no stress around and trauma, to, to use the language on an ongoing basis. Since Marianne is originally from Germany, quite far away from Haida Gwaii, I asked Marianne about how she ended up in British Columbia, Canada. I grew up in a sort of rural area in northwest Germany uh, where my own parents and all of their generations before language was not German actually, but uh, uh, what is actually a language, it's more like Dutch. And uh, then we moved to the city and our parents did the same thing under you know, various social pressures and whatnot uh, that uh, people here told indigenous people, teach them German and uh, to get along in life and you know, get jobs and all those kind of things. So that, that was my second language, but the one I, were, uh, I was raised in and spoke and but we had grandparents that we always went to during summers and uh, holidays and the uh, Frisian, like Pladoetsch was still, and to some degree is still spoken there. And when I was uh, in my late teens and in university in Germany too, I kind of became adventurous and took a trip to the northwest coast of North America and uh, went to Haida Gwaii and kind of, around, you know, I, I met people in Old Masset uh, in particular and stayed there for periods of time and uh, eventually approached the Old Masset Village Council at, that uh, to, uh, for me to do a, like a master's project there. Not so much on the language, but really more on the sort of economic, social situation at the time in the uh, mid-late 70s. And, yeah, they indulged me and let me do that. And then I, because of my prior interest in linguistics and languages, and I had become sort of really interested and intrigued in Hatkil, the Haida language. So I applied for a PhD scholarship uh, with the Canadian government and then went back to Haida Gwaii, and that's where I lived with uh, Santlene, Emma Matthews, and lived and worked with like a whole generation of elders that still all spoke the language. And Nani Emma said, uh, 
come and stay with me, I'll teach you, I'll raise you hide away, I, I think she said. So that was the beginning of, uh, yeah, it was a little bit by coincidence or maybe good fortune or uh, whatever. And uh, it's, uh, I, I both personally and I think the way it works in uh, Haida culture, when the, those elders adopted me uh, and gave me a name, um, I also took that to become a lifelong obligation uh, of becoming a community member, uh, contributing uh, in whichever ways I could. And as I uh, had, uh, what I said earlier, but I, I thought just very temporarily moved to the interior, but uh, that lasted for you know various reasons. Um, the uh, those elders, uh, Emma Matthews, uh, Adam Bell, uh, my sort of adopted sister Phyllis Bedard, and that that whole generation they had all passed away sort of in the second half of the eighties. And really, the family members I was closest to, most of them lived off island, and of course then I, I was growing a new family in Interior BC. Uh, but then uh, I think it was in sort of 1997, 98 or something, uh, a uh, couple of them kind of came knocking and said, you got to come back home and help us learners to learn the language. And at the time, there were still a few of the aunties and uncles that were still alive, that were still speakers. So, yep, I've been back ever since. Uh, I just, in fact, uh, was there last weekend and uh, working with a group of learners and uh, Skiljade, Linda joined us for the weekend. So, on it goes, and it's it's kind of good. There's some of the younger people, you know, you have Kuyang uh, Ben in Heidelberg and uh, uh, and, and Linda, of course, too, and a couple of others. And you have, uh, you know, some uh, of the more advanced learners, uh, Jasquan, Amanda Bedard, and, uh, uh, you know, a few others that have actually kind of steadily been learning. And some of them are getting really good and are now teaching it. And so it's it's a hard path, but it's sort of reaping rewards and it's been kind of really good also on I mean on the one hand in old Masset in the last uh, several years we've we've let, literally lost all the resident speakers no no different than Heidelberg has right and uh, we're fortunate that uh, Adam Bell's uh, son Lawrence Bell he's still my collaborator and um, but he lives in Vancouver uh, we just lost uh, Primrose Adams, Nani Bipsy, who was kind of the last speaker in, in, in her mid-90s uh, that was still hanging in there. And it, it's a huge loss to the community when over the course of a few years you go from a few elders that people can still go to and learn from to there's just nobody there anymore. And uh, but it uh, means also that the next generation has to step to the plate, right? Part of Marianne's work in language revitalization is with Simon Fraser University, SFU, as the director of SFU's 
First Nations Languages Program and Research Center. I wanted to ask her about the program, as well as Susie, who is currently finishing her master's degree in the linguistics in a First Nations language. So the master's program started in 2007? 17, in summer 17. 2017. And at first there was about 15 of us. from four from Alaska, and then the rest were part of three different language groups, or? Several, several yeah. yeah. There were uh, several Coast Salish students mm-hmm. uh, from Squamish and uh, Downriver Halkomenum backgrounds, uh, and then uh, uh, two from up north, uh, Denny mm-hmm. Athabascan learners. Uh, and the four of you, mm-hmm. and a couple of uh, three interior Salish Sequatmo students from my nation there. Yeah. yeah. So we all went through the program together and um, had all of our coursework together, and we got to learn from each other's experiences. So it was it was an awesome program, mm-hmm. and most of our professors were have worked with indigenous languages for. Um, either decades or for years, so, yeah. Yeah, it was, I, I think it, uh, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen when you throw together this yeah. <laughs> diverse group of language learners, yeah. but uh, what I uh, was really thrilled with, how you all became a group that mm-hmm. supported one another, that shared your knowledge, compared what you knew, mm-hmm. And uh, so the group really bonded. And we had a couple of late joiners, mm-hmm. your auntie, mm-hmm. Linda Schreck, uh, who's hopefully mm-hmm. also going to be able to finish off the project this spring. So, mm-hmm. yeah. The journey of revitalizing an endangered indigenous language is never easy. I asked Susie and Marianne about some obstacles they have encountered in their language journey. Just the distance between me and my teachers, because I've lived in Juneau mm-hmm. um, for most of my adulthood, and um, learning how to navigate technology and talking my teachers into teaching online and um, through the phone was one of the biggest obstacles. Um, but most of the time, um, Ben and Linda are both awesome teachers, and they make things happen, and they try to make our experience as um, easy as possible as it can be with language revitalization. So their work really helps. And then with Mary Ann's program, um, it, it opened up a lot. Uh, it helped me um, be able to learn that I can pre- like learn on my own. And how did how did, it, how did the program do that? Um, just. Marianne saying over and over again that we have to listen to recordings and we have to practice and yeah. Then uh, not having live speakers too that who can soak you in the language, so to speak. Mm -hmm. That's one of our biggest challenges, I think, across Mm -hmm. different languages, right? Yeah. And so technology, like you said, uh, can compensate to some degree Mm -hmm. and uh, then for lack of having somebody to talk to, at least you can listen to somebody speaking the language. Um, and uh, the, uh, 
the, the other challenge is, of course, then creating uh, occasions for practicing and using Hotkill or whichever language it is, where everybody can speak English. So you just always have to do that extra uh, bit to put English behind and make that extra effort to say it when it's awkward or difficult to be able to say it. And you know you're going to make mistakes, right? But that's okay too. That's how we learn. Being with Marianne and Susie, I felt inspired to try and learn about my indigenous language, Hodkill. So I asked them about what tips they have for language learners. Yeah. Well, do you have some thoughts? Uh, to be persistent. Mm -hmm. and get used to criticism, which is not always fun, but it's going to happen mm -hmm. <laughs> with anything you do, really. So, yeah, yeah. that's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, soak yourself in the language as best as you can with uh, uh, archived recordings uh, and seek it out also, like many of you do kind of over Facebook or uh, different social media nowadays. Uh, I uh, often text with Ben or Jasquan and uh, we use as much, you know, try to express ourselves in the language, not just the uh, sort of etiquette, hi, how are you, but actually saying what's up, what we're up to and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding for myself just kind of challenging myself to, uh, uh, to use hot kill which I hear less on a day-to-day -day basis than Sohuatmochi in my husband's language. Uh, it's, it's hard, but it's rewarding, I think. And one of the um, challenges that as a language learner and teacher, and I really consider myself both at the same time, right, uh, is um, it's not that hard to pick up the basics uh, so that you can, you know, make simple statements, understand sort of just a little bit what people are saying or what's being said in the recordings. Uh, the, the far more challenging one is to kind of to get to that intermediate level in the language where you can create with the language, where you can say your own things, not pre-practiced ones, and express yourself, right? And, and also then understand others expressing what they're up to, what they're going to do and what not, what their thoughts are. And that's the kind of thing where the both really hard work and more time plays a huge role. Um, you need sort of the first thousand hours to kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and then you need another couple of thousand, like between one and two thousand to kind of get to that level. And I think one of the challenges for young and not so young people is uh, we have jobs, how to all fit it into a day uh, while we you know, need to work at our day jobs uh, and have family with all those kind of things. The important thing is to be able to carry on intensive learning that actually then makes it happen to uh, bring out that sort of higher skill in the language and to find the structures and occasions to be able to do that. I think uh, Lance Twitchell, uh, who, you know, is a, who's 
from this area and uh, is a Tlingit language educator. He did the math on how many hours it'll take you to learn your language if you're doing a couple hours a week as opposed to 30 or 40 hours a week. And uh, it, you're basically going to spend decades and not get anywhere if you're only putting in a really small amount of time. But I think he has shown himself and others have that if you put in significant time, you can actually get pretty fluent in a language. I also asked Susie to share what she does to integrate Hodkill into her own life, living in a place like Juneau, Alaska. I try to make my husband learn with me. Um, my family is all taking classes with um, with me throughout college because mm-hmm. um, we're all Haida, so mm-hmm. okay. it makes sense that they learn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, let's see, finishing up my um, master's project is part part of that right now. Um, I don't know what I'm going to do after school's done and how, how to keep on, keep that up in my personal life mm-hmm. outside of family. Yeah, I think what that, that's a really important thing you're mentioning, like build your own little community of learners, right? Mm-hmm. With family, friends and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Coworkers. Mm-hmm. Coworkers, <laughs> yeah. Whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How ah to Mary Ann for coming all the way from Canada to offer your words of advice, and how ah to Susie for joining me in this talk. I enjoyed my time with some of my fellow Haida Ravens. Gitsqua Dungui Gin Lasang. I hope good things come your way. Jahawa, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Roots and Stems. House Dunk King Song. I will see you again. Roots and Stems is sponsored by Sea Alaska Heritage. Artwork for this podcast is by Tlingit artist Alison Bremner. The music is a Tsimshian song from Metlachatla, composed by Chuk Tignitza Skik. Gavin Hudson, Oechsin, for granting us permission to use the Askim Dim Lip Algagim for this podcast. Please visit sealaskaheritage.org for more information on this podcast and other programs. Gnachish Haat Oechsin.